The Eagle and Child, Episode 6. Mere Christianity, Book 1, Chapter 4. Hello, and welcome to The Eagle and Child, the hallowed pub of the Inklings. This is a podcast where, each week, my friend Matt and I share a beer and discuss the writings of the author known to the world as Clive Staples Lewis, or C.S. Lewis, or just as Jack to his friends. My name is David, and today we come to chapter four of book one of Mere Christianity, and it's entitled, What Lies Behind the Law? The end of book one is now in sight, and as always, I'm joined by my fellow honorary inkling, Matt. <laughs> I don't know if I'd consider myself an honorary inkling, but potentially a wannabe inkling. Going back to virtue and vice is probably a fine line that I'll leave it up to the listeners to decide. But uh, it is a pleasure to be here, and I'm looking forward to working through chapter four. In this chapter, Lewis will finally make the jump from the moral law to God. This will be one you will want to listen to closely. Yes, and if you disagree with anything that Lewis says or anything that we say, as always, please tweet us at Pints with Jack with your thoughts, feedback, criticism. It's all good. Now, we did talk about starting a different brand of beer today, but I've got some leftovers in the fridge. So I'm currently working on a Heineken and Matt is back on the blue moon. So cheers. Cheers. I have to say, I think we clink exceptionally well. I think so too. Years of practice. <laughs> So Jack begins this chapter by recapping the material we've covered thus far. First of all, the idea that there is this law of right and wrong, and that there are other laws of nature out there, like gravity, but these are mostly descriptive. They explain how nature behaves, whereas the law and right and wrong tells humans how they should behave, how they ought to behave, and do not. Jack describes it as a real law which we did not invent, and which we know we ought to obey. And so with these as our founding principles, Jack now begins to unpack what this tells us about the universe that we live in. He begins by asking the question, what is the universe and how did it come to be here? And he starts by presenting two views. There will be a third view that we'll touch on at the end. The two views he presents are the materialist view and the religious view. The materialist view is this view that matter and space just happen to exist which by some sort of fluke produce creatures like ourselves who are able to think. The religious view is this idea that behind the universe is more like a mind. It's conscious, it has purposes, and prefers one thing to another. We're going to go into these views, but the first thing to note is Lewis emphasizes that these views are very old. You can't say that the materialist view is this new view and the religious view is the old view. And as we've learned more, we can one supersedes the other one. If you go back in time, both of these have been held. What's interesting regarding the materialist view is some people use what's described here as an argument for God. Consider all the things which had to line up perfectly in order for life to exist in this universe. Yeah, because clearly, if you believe in the materialist view, that all of these things just happen to line up you believe an awful lot in chance. It would be fun going to Vegas with these people. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's like if we're balancing on a knife's edge, I mean, how perfect this needs to be. And to put in perspective, here's what Lewis writes. He says, matter behaving in certain fixed ways has just happened by a sort of fluke to produce creatures like ourselves who are able to think. 
By one chance in a thousand, something hit our sun and made it produce the planets. And by another thousandth chance, the chemicals necessary for life and the right temperature occurred on one of these planets. And so some of the matter on this earth came alive. And then by a very long series of chances, the living creatures developed into things like us. So you can see how this materialist view can actually be used as an argument for God. Yeah, it's often called the fine-tuning argument. All of these things have to line up perfectly to produce life. I'll put a link to a video in the show notes by a guy called Justin Briley, where he shows with the role of a dice why he believes in God, because of these incredible probabilities. But some people will argue against this. They'll often use the examples of monkeys and typewriters. That if you give enough monkeys enough time, just banging away randomly on the keys, they'll eventually type out the works of Shakespeare. Which, aside from the fact that you're going to have to have a lot of time and a lot of monkeys, intuitively, when we read the works of Shakespeare, we don't automatically think, oh, monkeys produce this. <laughs> it seems like something that was produced by a mind. Another counter that people bring up is, well, the universe, there's billions of galaxies in the universe, and therefore there was a chance that one of these was just going to happen to have the right conditions that we have. Different approach, but similar argument. We'll get to this later for the listeners, but we'll talk about how, even if that were the case, none of that happens to explain one bit the very beginning of time, which we'll talk about. And something else that's interesting about Lewis's description of materialism is Materialism is the view that matter and space just happen to exist and always have existed. And actually, when you go back in time, most people thought that the universe itself was eternal. But that's really not the prevailing view these days. Back in 1927, there was a scientist by the name of Georges Lemaitre, and he proposed the Big Bang Theory. And I think it's safe to say that's now become the dominant position in the scientific community. The idea that time, space and matter came into existence. Now, what's interesting is this Georges Lemaitre, he was a Catholic priest. Huh. Actually, when I was on the Camino de Santiago, I fell into step with a guy who was, he described himself as an atheist. He was much more of an agnostic. But he brought up the idea of the Big Bang disproving God. And I pointed out that actually, no, one, that's what the church has always said, that God created the world ex nihilo, from nothing. And also the very guy who proposed the Big Bang theory was a Catholic priest. We'll talk about this later, but the Big Bang almost strengthens the argument of the Catholic faith. Mm -hmm. Because as we talk about the first cause, a counter an atheist would say is, well, what, it just goes into eternity. Well, the Big Bang takes that right out of the equation. There was an actual starting point. Yes. And that feeds into it, a related argument, which is often known as the Kalam argument. It's the idea that time, space, and matter came into existence. And so if they come into existence, what is the cause of that? Well, if it created time, space, and matter, then the cause has to be timeless, spaceless, and immaterial, not to mention incredibly powerful. That sounds an awful lot like what we might call God. Now, it doesn't take us all the way to the God of the Bible, but it does at least take us part of the way there. And we'll now get into the actual proper meat of Lewis's chapter, but I want to spend a little bit of time talking about these various proofs for God, because... I've encountered a lot of people that just don't even know that they exist. St. Thomas Aquinas had his five ways, five proofs for God. And if you'd like to know more, I'd actually recommend a book that came out fairly recently uh, by Edward Faser. It's called Five Proofs for the Existence of God. 
And I actually got to hear him speak in Orange County a couple of weeks ago. No way. What was that like? Oh, he, he was fantastic. Had you read his book before? No, it, it's literally only just come out. Wow. Very clear thinker. And he, he takes what he thinks are the strongest arguments for God. Because some people actually don't think the Kalam argument is that strong. And so they go for some alternative arguments, particularly from Aquinas. When you were talking about the Kalam argument, it made me think of the new book that we've already referenced before that just recently came out by Trent Horn. And which you now have a copy of. Which I now have a copy of. Why We're Catholic. But it's a little deceptive because he actually starts from the journey of why there's God and a Christian God. And even Jesus. before that, why, why we believe in truth. Yes. Yes, you're right. Step cause, first. Because if we can't even agree that there is such a thing as truth, we can't go anywhere. Yes. We can't make, make any claims about anything. It's a deceptive title because you might think it's just defending the Catholic faith, but the first hundred pages of it are all devoted to it. We talked about building up to God, Christianity, truth, and so I'd highly recommend it. But in the very beginning, he is answering the question of why do we believe in the Creator? Essentially what we've been talking about right now. And he gives this great conversation he had before that I think summarizes it. An atheist was trying to use science to prove that God did not exist. Trent asks in response... What evidence would change your mind on God? Always a good question. Always a good question. Or, or in any position, whenever you're having an argument about anything, it's you can get to the heart of the issue if you say, what would you have to see in order to change your position to mine? That's, I'm, that's a good way of putting it. You then have a target that you can actually aim at. Yeah. I know I've certainly done this where I've launched into arguments for God, Christianity, the Catholic Church. And I've only found out afterwards that what I was arguing wasn't going to be of any use to that particular person. That wasn't their issue. That wasn't what it was going to take to make them change their mind. Yeah, that's such a good point. And so doing that tactic, the atheist responded, Trent, if you prayed and an amputated limb grew back, then I'd believe. How else could that happen unless God did it? So Trent replies, if you're impressed by a limb coming into existence from nothing, then why aren't you even more impressed by the whole universe coming into existence from nothing? If only God could regrow an amputated limb, then wouldn't only God be capable of creating an entire universe from nothing? <laughs> My one claim to fame was when I was at Oxford, uh, Richard Dawkins happened to be at New College, the college I was studying at. And I had just had a friend from college recommend to me Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion. And so Oxford time period was a lot when I was digging into these arguments. And as I'm reading The God Delusion, of course, there's a lot of convincing arguments if you don't really know anything about this subject at the time. But something always was unsettled in me. Never did it explain the beginning of the universe in a good way. And so I'm walking across the quad and there's Richard Dawkins and so I go up to him and I say, hey, I just finished your book, but I'm really struggling with something. The beginning. And he recommends to me, Lawrence Krauss, if I'm saying that right, something from nothing. And I researched, looked into it, into the argument. It's not nothing. Like it's a very deceptive title. It's one of those, well, there's this vacuum of principles where the universe could come into being. Okay, well, is that vacuum really nothing? Are those principles really nothing? I remember I watched a video on YouTube with Richard Dawkins having a debate with a Catholic priest. I think he was a bishop. And the question was asked about this nothing. 
no, before the Big Bang, what was there? And Richard Dawkins said something like, well, whatever it was, we're sure it was very simple and basic. And everybody started laughing. They said, why is that so funny? And the uh, Australian priest responded with, well, Richard, you're talking about nothing like something. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that summarizes it. You can say all you want that science has disproved God, but it couldn't be further from the truth. In fact, I think the more and more we learn about the universe, the stronger the case becomes. I agree. I'm also looking at the time, and we're on like 19 minutes. Okay. <laughs> so, returning to C.S. Lewis, and we'll stay with him from now until the end of the episode. But that was a fun diversion. Jack now gets to the subject of science. Can science adjudicate between these two different views? between the materialist view and the religious view. And he says no. He says, you cannot find out which view is the right one by science in the ordinary sense. Why anything comes to be, and whether there is anything behind the things that science observes, something of a different kind, this is not a scientific question. And I think we really live in an era of scientism. This, this pervades so much thought, and Bishop Robert Barron speaks a lot about this about this scientism which tries to reduce all knowledge to scientific knowledge. That if you can't put it in a test tube, then you can't really know if it's true. And this is a really problematic view for lots of reasons. For a start, science is the only knowledge. That's not a scientific statement. That's a philosophical statement. <laughs> you can't actually use science to prove it. You can, there's no experiment that you can devise to prove that statement. And science itself is based on a number of unprovable axioms. The idea that a world outside our minds must exist, and that we can attain true knowledge of this world. That the laws of logic operate. This and many others, we have to assume these things, even in order just to do science. And if we try and reduce all knowledge just to scientific knowledge, then we start having to toss out things like logic and philosophy. So as a remedy to this, Jack tells us what science really is. He says it basically boils down to saying, I put some of this stuff in a pot and heated it to such and such a temperature, and then I did so and so. And he tells us not to think that he's saying anything against science. He's just saying what his job is, what it's there for. He's just trying to establish the domain of science, the natural, the physical world. And that's exactly right. Why anything comes to be there at all, and whether there's anything behind the thing science observes, something of a different kind, that is not a scientific question. If there's something behind, quote unquote, then either it will have to remain altogether unknown to men or else make itself known in some different way. And that's what Jack does. He points out this different way. He says that there's actually one area of the universe where we have bonus data. He returns to the idea we've mentioned in earlier episodes when speaking about the moral law. It's this idea that we can look within ourselves. He says, we don't merely observe men. We are men. We have, so to speak, inside information. We learn from the universe by encountering it, but we also learn about humankind by experiencing being human. He says, men find themselves under a moral law, which they did not make and cannot quite forget even when they try. In which, and, and we try very, very hard. Oh, very hard. This is something you wouldn't really know by simply observing mankind. I like how he points out, 
anyone studying man from the outside as we study electricity or cabbage, not knowing our language and consequently not being able to get any inside knowledge from us, but merely observing what we did would never get the slightest evidence that we had this moral law. And how could he? For his observations would only show what we did. And the moral law is about what we ought to do. So Jack now gets to the question. We want to know whether the universe simply happens to be what it is for no reason or whether there is a power behind it that makes it what it is. Basically, is the materialist view right or is the religious view right? Exactly. And then he says something that I'd like to discuss a little bit because I'm going to push back just a little bit on what he says. He says that if this power exists, if God ultimately exists, God isn't going to be one of these absurd facts in reality. No more than, say, an architect of a house is actually going to be a wall or a floor or a fixture or a fitting. He says the only way in which we could expect this thing to show itself would be inside ourselves as this influence or this command trying to get us to behave in a certain way, which is exactly what we do experience. Now, I think I understand what he's going for here. But when I first read this, I pushed back on it because one of the very central claims of Christianity is that while the divine architect isn't a wall or a fixture or a fitting of the house that he built, he did for 30 years visit and actually live in this house. So what I think Lewis is getting at here is that God is not simply one of the things in the universe. And I think you're spot on because it's not as if he didn't know Jesus was God. I think he knew. I think he did too. He wrote an entire book about that, in fact. So he must be referring to something different. So I believe, getting back to that point earlier he was making, that science can't evaluate, measure, prove God through its scientific methods, because those are measure, those would be things like measuring the walls or the floors, and he wasn't one of those. Yeah, he is not a natural thing. Yes. The idea of Thomas Aquinas that God is the very ground of being itself. Exactly. Not just a superhuman. Yes. Jack then uses an analogy that I honestly actually spend a little bit of time with it to try and work out what he was trying to say. But he says about the postman that he infers the contents of the other paper packets that are delivered to other homes based on the ones that he himself receives. What he's basically saying is that he finds the moral law in himself and infers from that that other human beings do as well. And also that other aspects of nature also receive messages from this divine letter writer. The only difference being that some of these messages are commands, like obey gravity, whereas other letters are invitations, such as in the case of the moral law. He says, the sender of these letters merely tells me to obey the law of my human nature. He compels the stone to obey the laws of its stony nature. But I should expect to find that there was, so to speak, a sender of letters in both cases, a power behind the facts, a director, a guide. Now, Lewis's readers might start thinking at this point that Lewis thinks he's just proved Christianity. But he says, don't think that I'm going faster than I really am. And honestly, he could have said this at the end of every single chapter. He says, I'm not within 100 miles yet of the God of Christian theology. He says, all that he's established thus far is that there is this something, this something that's directing the universe and that appears in each one of us as a law urging us to do right. And he concludes that this something be best described probably as a mind because the only other real candidate is matter and you couldn't really think of matter giving instructions 
Before we leave this chapter, as we mentioned earlier, Jack puts a note at the end explaining that there, there is a third view. Because when he first gave this talk, he was giving it on the BBC, and so it had to be a little shorter. So he just stuck with materialism and the religious view. But he says there's actually a third option. Exactly. And this third view is this life force philosophy, or creative evolution, or emergent evolution. The wittiest expositions of it come in the works of Bernard Shaw, but the most profound one in those of Bergson. Now, I knew who the first person here was. That's George Bernard Shaw. He was an Irish playwright, critic, polemicist. And I'll actually include a link in the show notes to a very chilling video of him on YouTube where he's talking about eugenics. Ooh. Yeah, it's, it's pretty terrible. Wow. And the other guy, Bergson, I had to look this guy up, is Henri Bergson. He was a French philosopher. And I suppose it's unsurprising that a playwright writes more wittily than a philosopher. <laughs> so getting back to Jack, he points out that people who hold this view, this life force philosophy, say that the small variations by which life on this planet evolved from the lowest forms to man were not due to chance, but due to the striving or purposiveness of a life force. Now, this life force is a bit vague. I mean, do you think a philosophy like this exists today? When I was thinking about it, what it reminded me of is when people talk about the universe guiding them. It sounds sort of like God, you know, that there is something driving, giving purpose, directing the show, so to speak, but in a fairly impersonal way. Yeah, it sounds like when they say destiny or mother nature. Yeah, a little more like that. And I think that because of what Jack says next, because he says, when you meet these people, ask them whether this life force has a mind. Because if it does have a mind, it sounds sort of like God, this mind that is guiding the universe. But if it doesn't have a mind, how does it strive? How does it have purposes? Why do you think this worldview is attractive to people? I think Jack gives the reason why. And if we are understanding him correctly, that it's the same sort of thing when people say the universe is guiding me towards this or that. It basically allows you to feel like there is a greater purpose, but also a very uninterfering greater purpose. The God of the Bible, the God of Judaism, the God of Islam has something to tell you. He has expectations of you. You know, we've been speaking thus far about the moral law. The moral law places responsibilities upon you. And that's not fun. But the life force, that doesn't burden me. Yeah, it appears to be only neutral or positive. Jack actually describes this life force as a sort of tame god. He says you can switch it on when you want it, but it will not bother you. All the thrills of religion and none of the cost. And he actually concludes by asking the question whether the life force is actually the greatest achievement of wishful thinking that the world has ever seen. Which I thought was kind of funny because when I've met the more adamant atheists, they've told me that Christianity is just wish fulfillment. Which I find rather strange because I'm wishing a load of responsibilities on me that honestly I would prefer to be without. But this life force idea, the idea of the universe guiding me but not placing any requirements on me, that seems, if I was going to wish for anything, I'd be wishing for something like that. That's so true. The God of Christianity is the God of this moral law, unrelenting. A phrase he's going to use is hard as nails. The God of Christianity places demands upon us, but the vague life force doesn't. I think that answers it. And you know what? As always, it's been great, but it's getting close 
to going home time. In the show notes, I'll include my notes for this chapter. And in case you haven't checked the show notes thus far, I'd invite you to do so, because apart from anything else, we have yet another C.S. Lewis doodle. Of course, you're referring to the YouTube videos that we talked about on the last episode, mm-hmm. where someone is reading the text of the chapter, while this artist draws pictures to go along with the text, which after viewing them are incredibly detailed and actually quite helpful for sticking mental images in your head. So yeah. I'd highly recommend them. Yeah, I'm, I'm a visual learner. I love it. Yeah. Uh, as always, please like, share, subscribe. The best thing you could ever do for us is to tell somebody else to listen to us. Please write us reviews on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. And if nothing else, just just rate us. Give us, give us those five stars. And you can always contact us on the website, restlesspilgrim.net. Tweet us at Pints with Jack. We love the tweets. Mm-hmm. So let's do the sign-off. As we've mentioned before, this is a line from the last of the Narnia books. Further up. And further in. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>